Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. If you never imagined that bugs could be beautiful, you may reconsider after seeing a new exhibition at Fernbank Museum. Microsculpture, the insect portraits of Levon Biss, magnifies these tiny creatures into exquisite large-format portraits. We'll hear from the renowned British photographer later in the hour. First, National Black HIV AIDS Awareness Day is on February 7th. True Colors Theatre Company is marking the observance with a virtual reading of the play Before It Hits Home by Cheryl West. The event is a collaboration with the Counter Narrative Project. Charles Stevens is the executive director of that project. He joins us now with the artistic director of True Colors Theatre Company, Jamil Jude. Welcome back to City Light. Thanks again for having us, Lois. Thanks, Lois. Why is the play Before It Hits Home appropriate for this observance? You know, a couple of reasons come to mind. The first being that all too often we fail to recognize the achievements in Black theater history. You know, we've been writing plays in the Black theater canon for decades and and centuries, uh, but often we forget to mark their anniversaries. Before It Hits Home um, by Cheryl L. West is now 30 years old, and it really changed the game as it was uh, one of the first plays to discuss the impact HIV was having on Black families. And at its time, it was really controversial as we were still trying to get over the stigma, and we still are challenged by the stigma. So it's going to be an opportunity for us to think about, well, where were we 30 years ago? Where are we now in fighting back stigma? And also here's an opportunity for us to honor and celebrate a play in the Black theater history that doesn't get its recognition in the same way that you see, you know, Normal Heart or Angels in America or some other plays that um, the theater uh, shines a light on in the way that they discuss HIV. Yes. Charles, would you please talk a bit about the counter-narrative project? 
Absolutely. The work of the Counter Narrative Project is at the intersection of the arts and culture and social justice. And we look forward to opportunities to use the arts, use culture as strategies to have discussions across lines of difference, but also as ways to inspire critical dialogue, to inspire activism, to mobilize. And we see a play such as Before It Hits Home as an amazing opportunity to do that work. It's a play that grapples with HIV stigma, that grapples with anti-LGBTQ attitudes, that really shines a light on a, you know, a Black family uh, sort of confronting the HIV epidemic early on. And, you know, when, as we were thinking about ways to observe National Black HIV Awareness Day, um, it just was really important to use the arts as a, as a means to do that. And that's when I, you know, reached out to Jamil Jude and True Colors and asked if they would be interested in partnering, partnering on a, a virtual reading of this project. Jamil, what were your thoughts when Charles contacted you? Charles has actually been one of my longest collaborators here in the city. I think we started changing messages and phone calls before I moved here. As you know, we kind of learned about each other. They were staging a reading of a play that I, I was very fond of, Choir Boy, uh, and wanted to find ways to connect. And anytime I get a call from Charles, I know that the project is worthwhile. And the fact that our organizations can be so closely aligned as we share an interest in, you know, not just telling Black stories, but telling the breadth and depth of Black stories here um, that all too often uh, get left to the margins. So Charles Carl says he has a really good idea. Um, True Colors, in our efforts to thrive at the intersection of artistic excellence and civic engagement, you know, there are issues that here in Atlanta we don't like to talk about, but um, the HIV and AIDS and raising awareness around how our communities are plagued, the challenges being faced by people living and thriving with HIV, we got to find ways to shine more light on it. And the fact that we can also honor uh, one of our great playwrights in the Black theater community, um, it was a no-brainer. It was a really, really easy decision. There was no arm twisting or anything like that needs to happen. When Cheryl West wrote this play, HIV was viewed as a death sentence. Would you talk about perceptions of the disease during the early AIDS crisis? Yes. Well, part of what this play does really well is document, in a sense, uh, attitudes around people living with HIV, HIV stigma um, early on in the epidemic's history. And as you mentioned, it was a very you know, it was such a, a critical time in the sense that uh, you, HIV stigma, there are scientific advances that, had, that hadn't happened yet. There was considerable structural violence that, uh, you know, people were experiencing. And today, though, there have been, you know, there's been progress made. I think attitudes around HIV stigma still persist. There's still uh, significant barriers to healthcare that people experience in trying to access treatment and prevention. And so I think that this play will allow us an opportunity to reflect back at those attitudes back in the early 90s, but also look at um, where we are now and see you know, some of the lessons learned, um, as well as look at where we still have, how far we still have to go. But that being said, I think that 
you know, there have been, you know, significant achievements and accomplishments since that time. I think there's been amazing leadership, the birth and evolution of, of many organizations, even in here in Atlanta, uh, such as Sister Love, such as Thrive SS, um, that do amazing work, Atlanta Harm Reduction Coalition, just so many amazing organizations that do great work in the HIV community. But yes, this play can almost be seen as uh, a historical, provide some historical perspective, but also I think reveals how far we still have to go. You know, and I wanna just get in on that. I, I wanna thank Charles and the Counter Narrative Project for introducing me to organizations like Thrive SS, where, you know, we've partnered on plays, you know, with similar themes in the past. And it's really um, opened up my eyes and educated me on, you know, some of the inherent stigmas that I was holding on to, ways that I can uh, better myself. So it's not just like, uh, you know, we as artists or as partners come to this thing and uh, we're enlightened, right? There's a process. So uh, for anybody who feels like, oh, you know, maybe I'm too far behind or like I'm unwilling to um, embrace and challenge myself on my own assumptions or, or held beliefs, whether I'm, I acknowledge them or understand them or not, that through these types of partnerships, through these types of plays, right? We're trying to increase people's capacity for empathy and understand uh, life and circumstances that may not uh, directly affect us or do affect us and we don't want to talk about them. Um, I'm thankful for the work that Charles has been doing, Charles and others have been doing, um, but specifically this relationship where I feel like I've grown um, and I'm glad to be able to give that back in an artful way. Uh, we also want to shout out Tandi, our, our director, who's been doing an amazing job with this cast. I want to just make sure I said that too. <laughs> the play tells the story of Wendell, a jazz saxophonist. He's bisexual. He contracts HIV. Minus spoilers. Can you give us more of an idea of the plot? So what we, we find this jazz musician kind of at the height of his power as we start the play. Uh, he's in his zone, he's in his element, and we see somebody who we could understand why so many people are drawn to him, just his aura and the way he goes about himself. Uh, and then what starts off as a, as a tickle and as a cold, he's gone and seen several doctors. Uh, now he has to embrace the fact that, oh, my status is changed. I've now tested positive. So now uh, the play really explores how that status change, how that determination, how acknowledging that I am now HIV positive, how does that affect the people in his life, whether it's his girlfriend that he's been living with, whether it's a, a man he's been seeing on the side, and then how that ultimately has impact on his family. Uh, who has his family seen him as? How does this change in status as he becomes more public uh, with it? How does that now affect the relationship? We really see uh, so many people have to wrestle with, um, like I mentioned earlier, uh, their own inherent bias on how they deal with someone. How does their view of that person change? Should it? Should it not? We watch Wendell and uh, those around him that he loves. We watch them deal with this as well. Cheryl West takes on the Black church. What does this play have to say about the Black church at the time it was written during the early years of the AIDS crisis? I think it's a calling in, right? Like what I, what I appreciate about Mrs. West is trying to do with that, it is not 
pointing a finger and saying like you all have been bad what it is is saying that we can't act like we aren't full of hypocrisy <laughs> like all of us all of us have sinned and fall short of the throne of grace if we're going to be super biblical uh, about it and how can we look at one another and determine okay your sins are okay but these aren't how can we as a community that believes in love and trust and being together and how our communal uplift is what we're dedicated to how can we then also turn our backs on members of our community uh, with outside of this diagnosis we profess to love and care for um, i think she really does it in as loving as a way as one can but not letting them off the hook and holding people to account. What I appreciate about the play in Cheryl West is that there is a sense not of indictment, but one of bearing witness, one of careful observation, and seeking to find these moments, these threads that can be woven together to create a really compel compelling narrative about this family, this community that's experiencing all that, all that's happening to them. I mean, I feel like this play does a really good job of censoring the humanity of these very complicated characters. It's often very tempting and seductive for writers to resort to crude stereotypes and reproducing pathologies of communities. I think that Cheryl West's work, the work transcends that and is able to really profoundly represent the humanity of these characters so that the audience walks away not feeling voyeuristic, not feeling like they were um, participating in something awful, but really transformed. And I think that it just really reveals just something unique and powerful about the human experiences told through these characters. Do you think we have seen progress in those attitudes changing? Well, I think what's powerful about National Black HIV Awareness Day on February 7th is that we have the opportunity to look back and look forward. Do, we, do I think that we should pat ourselves on the back? In some ways, yes. I think there's just been tremendous progress, particularly by people living with HIV in leadership and community organizing and community mobilizing to certainly move the needle but I think there's still a tremendous and extraordinary amount of HIV stigma, of silence, of institutions that marginalize people living with HIV and impacted by HIV. There's still, even in, even in Atlanta, significant barriers to healthcare and services that I think we absolutely, on National Black HIV Awareness Day, we should examine. But I think what's also unique about this particular collaboration and this experience with True Colors is we also have the opportunity to celebrate a Black playwright that very early on used her platform and used her brilliance to tell this story. And I think so often the contributions of Black people in the HIV movement have been erased or been marginalized or just kind of um, minimized. And I think that uh, this, this day, this project, this work, it's just an important commemoration that, you know, Black people have always been on the front line since the beginning, even Black artists, bearing witness, you know, calling out, calling in. And I'm just really, uh, really pleased with that. This reading will take place as we battle another deadly pandemic. Does the present 
inform the past in your reading of before it hits home? One of the ways in which you know we constantly see how our systems have failed our historically marginalized communities, in this case, specifically black black communities, uh, access to healthcare, access to uh, information, the distance people have to travel in order to get treatment. You know, I, I, th- I think it's because of Charles and Thrive SS's advocacy that I learned about just where some HIV treatment facilities are located here in, in Atlanta, uh, where people have to go and get their medications. If you are living in the south side of Atlanta, and you have to travel uh, to the north side like several times a week. And you don't have access to, you know, cars or you have to rely on public transportation. That could be a long trek. And the same thing, you know, that we're looking here uh, with this, you know, deadly pandemic that we're in right now with the coronavirus, like people's access to like, okay, how are people being treated when they show up at hospitals? People who have pre-existing conditions uh, because of disparity in healthcare and how it's been provided in the country, more Black people have these pre-existing conditions and they're being affected. So I think what we learn is that hey, we got to do a better job as the United States to answer these questions, to build back trust in the community. This vaccine rollout, there's so many people who feel like I'm not interested in taking it because of the way in which our health system has impacted, negatively impacted Black communities. So I I think, yes, there is definitely a a learning to be had here about what we need to do to be better to these historically underserved communities. Mm. You have quite a star-studded cast. Would you like to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, I'm... I'm so happy that people said yes uh, to this project because of just how crazy the world is. The fact that these artists uh, stopped what they were doing and decided that, you know, here's what uh, I want to do to contribute to this conversation. So we were able to have people like Jakina Calacango, who was Tony nominated. And just recently you saw her in One Night in Miami playing Malcolm X's wife. Crystal Fox was a longtime uh, True Colors artist. Uh, who starred in a Netflix film, uh, is coming back and giving her talents to play Wendell's mom. Brian Jordan Jr., who's on Tyler Perry's sisters. Keith Randolph-Smith, who was in the 30th, who was in the original production and is a longtime Atlanta veteran at the Alliance and um, has played on Broadway recently. Like, did, I'm going to get excited about just naming. And I think the most exciting thing is also that we have this young man. His name is Jamar Crawford. He's a student at Utopian School for the Arts uh, down in Clayton County. And he's just there to soak it up. And he does not disappoint. Like he has these veterans in the company. But when he arrives on your Zoom virtual stage, um, he holds his weight. And he is there and he's giving it to him. And uh, one of his mentors, Tanya Jackson, is also in the company. So it's just really nice to see Tanya having mentored Jamar and then getting to act with him. It's a, it's a really brilliant, dynamic cast that um, have so many Atlanta ties, True Colors ties. Uh, and they're doing their best work here with this show. Oh, that is so exciting. In a recent article about virtual play readings by the theater critic Jesse Green, he wrote, they are no longer fossils of an old kind of theater, but early forms of a new one. What 
is special for the audience about a virtual play reading? You know, I think it kind of levels it out a little bit, right? Like, I think sometimes, like, one of the best things about being on stage is uh, this fourth wall, right? Like, where we are all, as audience members, invited to play make-believe, to suspend our disbelief, to know that what we are viewing, we are getting access into the lives of people. But there is a level of um, pop and circumstance that's around it. In a digital reading, we are literally inside of someone's home. Like this is an intimate uh, space oftentimes. So we're seeing actors, whether they're, you know, caved out this little space inside their home with these neutral backgrounds and things like that, but they're still performing their art at a high level. So you get to see in a way kind of distilled for us um, stripping away costumes, stripping away um, high stage makeup or uh, scenery and sets. And we really get an opportunity to sort of sit and listen to an artist, interpret a script and give us back a performance that we can share in our intimate settings, that being our homes, oftentimes in our pajamas uh, as we watch uh, as we watch a play unfold. So I think that's the the magic of it. If you can give yourself into this story and just allow yourself to be taken away, stop what we're doing, stop being distracted. Although we're on our computers and an email will pop up or a text message will come in. If we can really just give ourselves over uh, to the magic of the storytelling, I think we will come to find out that, you know, while it would never replace live theater, that it does give us a sense of community and connection that all too often we don't get uh, in the midst of this pandemic. Indeed. So with the hope that live theater will return as soon as it's safe, do you think True Colors will continue with virtual play readings? Yes, I think True Colors will maintain a virtual reading. You know, one thing that I love is that it's allowing us to collaborate with artists outside of the Atlanta metro area. You know, they are able to give of themselves back to the work. I also really am excited about audio play. And I find that the audio play feels closer to uh, live theater than it did because it allows us to kind of use our imagination more. With Zoom, you know, we are visual people. So we see all of it. And like, maybe we don't allow our imaginations to go that place. Maybe because we see somebody in a neutral background or be, maybe because we have to work a little bit harder to suspend our disbelief. Maybe we don't want to fully participate, but what I've been enjoying about audio plays and podcasts is, you know, you close your eyes and you have to come up with the rest of it, much like when you read a novel. So um, True Colors is going to wade into that water with audio plays and we'll find a way to do this digital art, this new wave. I, hesitate in, in calling it theater because it, it isn't. It's something new, like Jesse Green has said, and uh, the word will come up. Uh, at one point in time, I called it Ubizi just because it was um, three letters I found on a box next to my desk. Um, but, you know, it, we will figure out what style and form it wants to be and for True Colors to be the theater that we want it to be, again, one that leads with excellent art. It's something that we're going to have to find our way into as well. Jamil Jude, Artistic Director of True Colors Theatre Company, and Charles Stevens, Founder and Executive Director of the Counter-Narrative Project. 
there will be a free virtual play reading of Before It Hits Home this Sunday at 2 p.m. from True Colors Theatre. Brian Jordan Jr. is a member of the cast, and in a moment, we'll talk with him about his TV and film work. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Brian Jordan Jr. plays a hilarious character, Maurice Webb, on Tyler Perry's series, Sisters. He's also a classically trained singer and dancer with an interest in fashion. Brian Jordan Jr. is with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Sisters was the first primetime scripted series to be entirely filmed during the pandemic and then aired. Brian, what was it like for you as an actor filming during the pandemic? It was exhilarating, to say the least. It was a scary a bit. It was exciting. It was new, novel. You know, that's a word that we hear so much when we speak of the pandemic um, here in the United States. We were very well taken care of, I must say. And there were so many different methods of protocol and and safety that were put in place to make sure that we were um, taken care of. And so I was a bit um, nervous initially, but once I got there, I felt like, honestly, I was in the safest place in the world because... We knew that we were being tested every other day and that everyone was being tested and that, you know, and we would know if people were not testing negative because they would be asked to leave. And it just felt safe to know that it was a COVID free oasis. You couldn't leave and no one can get in once we did the loading. So, yeah, you said oasis. I'm thinking of that bubble like the athletes were in. What can you tell us? about camp quarantine at Tyler Perry Studios. You know, what I always like to say, this a little friendly competition. We were the first bubble. Aha. I believe that. <laughs> I believe that the NBA actually stole our idea. No, I'm joking. But we inaugurated the bubble at Tyler Perry Studios, and it was something that was very, very well thought out. And he worked with the medical team at Emory Hospital to make sure that things were safe. But he also was very adamant and vehement about making the areas comfortable. There were 
amazing five-star accommodations for our living quarters. And the food was great. There was so much food. It was too much food for actors, you know, but there were restaurants on site and there was a hospital on site and a grocery store on with everything that one would have inside of a small city was there in the in the bubble. And so it was great. It was really, really great. And I believe that in order to be able to be away from your families for that amount of time in the during, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, we filmed in July. I guess the understanding of what it was and the developments weren't as um, clear as they are today. And so in that time, we were just watching the numbers fluctuate, the deaths fluctuate, you know, and it was difficult to be away from family and to be, you know, concentrating on 22 episodes of hour long TV in 14 days in, you know, so it was difficult to balance the two. But what I will say is inside of the bubble, it was so comfortable. It was so accommodating that it really, really helped. Oh my. For those unfamiliar with this show, how would you describe Sisters? Oh my goodness. I believe that Sisters is a new vivid look at Black millennial life when it comes to up and coming young black men and women in Atlanta. Um, There are so many different aspects and uh, socioeconomic parallels and things that are happening today with the cast of Sisters and so many different type of black women. The show is about four black women and it surrounds their lives. And so, you know, the people who are part of their lives become a part of the story too. And it's such a broad spectrum of Black millennial life, which I think is something that's needed on television. It is a drama D, which means that it, you you get as close to full spectrum of life as one can get, especially in these times that we're currently living in. But Sisters is, a, I think that it is something that is uh, exciting and full of surprises and activity. It's very involved. Sisters is very involved. Well, your character, Maurice Webb, is hilarious. You play this unapologetic gay banker on the show. Would you describe Maurice's relationship with the four main female characters? 100%. I believe that, you know, oftentimes, especially in um, Atlanta, which has, you know, of deemed itself and also proven to the nation how progressive it is, especially when it comes to the LGBTQIA community. It's necessary to show Black gay men if you're ha- if you're having a show in Atlanta. And I believe that Maurice is a representative of that in all of the ladies' life. He is the one that will, I mean, fashion-wise, Maurice is going to be able to tell you what to do and what not to do, hair and and relationships and everything. He has an opinion about everything, but also, you know, um, Tyler Perry writes about real and, you know, very, very extreme dramas when it comes to Black women's lives. And I believe that he is a voice that we haven't seen much um, in cinema, in television. And so when you have those aspects of, you know, the perils that are so hard for African-American women to deal with in America, Maurice is the comedic rainbow, for the lack of better words, at the end of the storm. It's so many storms that, you know, Black women have. And so Maurice is always there for a laugh, even in the mess, even in the sadness, Maurice will be able to make you laugh. And he, he, he really is a, a person who comes from love. He's a light. I believe that he's a light. Aww. Did you draw from 
your own life in any way to help create the character of Maurice? Mm -hmm. I, you know, that's a great question. To be honest with you, when I auditioned for the role, I did not feel that I would be able to draw from my own life because Maurice and I are so different. But one thing I believe in just in my training, I like to call myself a method actor, which is, sounds so cliche, but I believe that in order to make characters connect with real people, they have to be connected to real people. And in my experience of building characters, especially theatrically, I've always been able to draw from myself with Maurice, I felt like we shared things that all characters share with the actor, and that is the body and, you know, and, and the mind and the breath. But with Maurice, I had to really work hard to draw from people that I knew very well and really, really spend time with people who I didn't know very well, but who had, you know, experienced the things that Maurice experienced. Maurice is a drag queen. And before doing the research that I did to develop Maurice, um, I didn't know what a drag queen would even do. I've learned so much through it. And so uh, there's so many people that I can, you know, say that I drew from, but I had a choir director and I always speak about her because I was in, you know, I grew up in a Baptist church. My grandfather was a pastor and this choir director is, is, a, is a lady, but she was so flamboyant. Her fashion was always flamboyant and she had a flamboyant personality and she told it like it was. And when I had to audition for Maurice, it was very quick. Um, and I pulled from her because she was the person who I could hear in those lines. In building Maurice and having the time to develop him more and give him dimension, there are a lot of people that I pulled from. I pulled from the Southern, you know, jargon of my grandmother and, you know, the quick wit of Jennifer Lewis, who's one of my favorite actresses, and, you know, and, and so I pulled from Black women, I just believe that Black women are just the savior to the world. And so, and especially to me. And so when I was making, you know, the choices for Maurice and the physicality and just how he would live and breathe, I wanted to ground him in Black womanhood. Wow. Mm -hmm. What do you think about LGBTQ representation on primetime TV? Do you think it has improved? Oh, 100%. And I believe that there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot more room for it to improve. But I do believe that there's something to be said about a character like Maurice living on television and being able to be a star of a television show and not just, you know, a recurring auxiliary to a character. I believe that, you know, Uncle Clifford, there's a show called P Valley that was also, uh, you know, filmed in Atlanta. And he is the star of that show. And he is a LGBTQIA, you know, feminine presenting character. And I believe that it is beautiful to see. And even though that is not, you know, I am not that, I am so honored to be able to represent and be a part of making the change and helping people to be seen who haven't felt seen before. And I think that Maurice represents so many unseen things, LGBTQIA being the most important, but also larger um, black men on television in a role that is not about a larger black man. It's just a role that anyone could have played. But Maurice just happens to be larger, you know, and I think that that is also something that should be celebrated. And also I applaud BET, Viacom and Tyler Perry for making that decision. It just so happens to give me a job, which I'm happy about that too, but I am um, excited about the progression of all different types of diversity, especially LGBTQ. If, if we could just step back for a moment, what 
you've said has been very insightful. But when you said, I am not that, did you mean you are not gay? Yes. Okay, that's what I thought you meant, but I, I just wanted to be sure. Yeah, well, it's a role, and you draw from everything to inform a role. I'm intrigued with what you're saying about all size bodies being represented. We're so long overdue for that. And especially when you think about, my goodness, the the number of eating disorders, even deaths that were caused over people, and largely women, because they felt they had to conform to be a certain size. I, I read that your biggest hobby right now is fashion for plus-sized men. What can you tell us about how plus-sized men are accommodated in the fashion industry? You know, I, I wish that I could tell you how we were accommodated, but I don't believe that we are. There is not a atelier or higher-end fashion brand that caters to larger men. Um, and we're starting to see it with, you know, the, you know, the more um, ready-to-wear lifestyle daily brands like Zara and ASOS, those online companies. But I am a person who has always been a lover of fashion and very passionate about it. In my opinion, I feel that even, even larger women get more of a, and I, and, I, and I understand the buying power of women, and I understand how, you know, in fashion, women really, really have a heavier margin when it comes to the purchasing. But I do feel that it, when, I, when it's time for me to go to the red carpet or time for me to be, you know, get the, it takes a lot of effort. And I have, you know, every other guy on the show, we're very close friends and every other guy on the show, you know, they're in great shape and it's no problem for them at all. So I just want things that are comfortable for men who are not huge, you know, like six, six, you know what I mean? But men who are also not 160 pounds. So I'm very passionate about developing um, a product that will serve every man. Actor Brian Jordan Jr. portrays the character of Maurice Webb in Tyler Perry's show, Sisters. He'll also be a part of a virtual play reading of Before It Hits Home by True Colors Theatre Company and the Counter Narrative Project. The event will celebrate the play's 30th anniversary and commemorate National Black HIV AIDS Awareness Day on February 7th at 2 p.m. Levon Biss is an acclaimed photographer whose subjects include director Quentin Tarantino, the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, and the greatest sprinter in the world, Usain Bolt. His latest exhibition has subjects infinitesimally smaller in size and reputation. Microsculpture, the insect portraits of Levon Biss, is on view at Fernbank Museum of Natural History, 
Mr. Biss joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Hello there, how are you? Very well, thanks. Why did you want to photograph bugs? Um, for me, it was as simple as I was looking for a new challenge. I had been photographing humans for the best part of 20 years in various guises, whether they were sports stars or movie stars. But then after a while, I was kind of getting a bit bored with that style of photography and that genre of photography. And I was looking for another way to exercise my brain. <laughs> and uh, it came about actually via my son, who was around eight years old at the time. And I, I was looking for these, you know, new projects. I had these big epic journeys in my head of, you know, what I could do. But he actually came up to the studio one day and he'd found a small ground beetle in the backyard. And we looked at it under a microscope. Um, and I was just amazed at what I saw. And that's where it all began, really. It, um, I photographed the first image for him from that one we found in the garden and that took me approximately eight months and uh, and it's, it's moved on from there oh wow now i delighted in watching your ted talk of 2017 and in that talk you said that sometimes you wished you had the eyes of a child in order to look at the world with that wide-eyed wonder Clearly, having your own children has helped you look at subjects with that innocent curiosity. Have your children continued to inspire your photography and, in particular, your nature photography? I wouldn't necessarily say just my children. My children certainly do inspire me on a daily basis with their sort of enthusiasm for life, should we say. But I think it's, having seen the exhibition go live for a number of years and we've toured it all over Europe and the Middle East and America, it's actually the reaction of the children at the exhibitions when they see these giant three-metre photographs of, of insects that, that inspires me. Because, you know, there's always going to be a chance that they could be scared about these these creatures, but they're not. They're they're fascinated. In fact, all they want to do is touch these prints. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I like that fact. I like the fact that children are curious by nature. And, you know, and they're learning all the time. I think as we get older, our, our brains tend to soak up less information. Maybe we get kind of full. I'm not sure. But children, they, they, they're always curious. They're always trying to find out how things work or what things look like and... You know, and I, and I find that inspirational. I wish I could stay like that as long as I can. When your son brought you the ground beetle, was it in a jar? Was it in his hand? How did he present it? Oh, very much in his hand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, it was a, a time of year. It was in spring, and so they, they come out, and, you know, every now and again, one of, them, one of them will die, and you'll you'll see these beetles all around the backyard or on the road or pavement and um it was one of those They're, it's a common species and you see them quite a lot so yeah he, he he brought up this dead insect for us to have a look at because it was green and it was kind of metallic in appearance and so and that's why we looked at it under a microscope it was his microscope actually we bought him a small science kit for christmas and uh, it was under that that we looked at it and uh, so that, that's how it started so the ground beetle was dead 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Because you can't ask an insect to pose. No, not for eight months, no. <laughs> Would you tell us then how you create these images? Um, it's a long process um, and it needs quite a lot of patience. Basically, each image is, is created from around 8,000 separate photographs, sometimes up to 10,000 or more. Essentially, what I do, I use microscope lenses on the end of my of end of tube lenses. I, I basically, essentially, I built a, a rudimentary microscope that bolts onto my camera. And I place that onto a rail that I move forward about seven microns in between each picture. That's about one seventh or one tenth width of a human hair. And basically what it does, because when you photograph at very high magnifications, you get something called a shallow depth of field, which means there's very little in, in the photograph that's in focus. So you have to take lots and lots of photographs, each with a tiny slither of focus to, to achieve you know, full focus in the final image. So the camera goes on a rail. I program the start focal point and the end focal point, and then it will take a picture, move forward seven microns, take another picture, move forward, and so on. And so it gives you a big stack of images, which I think then can squash together, only taking out the bits that are in focus, and that gives you one image that is fully focused from front to back. But but the way I work is I'll, I'll split that insect up into maybe 25 different sections. And I'll, I'll, fo I'll, I'll photograph it separately. For example, I'll just photograph the eye of an insect, but I'll light it to make that eye look as beautiful as you can possibly make it. Almost treating that particular area of the insect like a small still life. And then I'll move on to an antennae and uh, I'll do the same there. So each section has its own lighting setup. And then I and I bring it all back together like a jigsaw in the end. So they take about three to four weeks sometimes to to produce. It's it's labour intensive, oh, to say the least. Please tell us about the insect species you chose to photograph. Um, with this project, I was working with the Oxford University Museum of Natural History, and that's where all the specimens came from. So it was quite a, a luxurious way of working and, and quite indulgent in the fact that I was really only looking at the appearance of the specimens. So not so much the function or habitats, it's more how they looked, because I was interested in the, what is called microsculpture. Microsculpture is the, the term for the lumps and bumps and hairs and ridges and pits, all the texture that's on the exoskeleton of, a, of an insect. And so I was looking at those in a, with a photographic eye to see how I could light it and, and how I could play with those forms photographically. So I used to go to, to Oxford and I used to work with um, a gentleman called Dr. James Hogan. And I used to tell him the kind of thing I was looking for, whether I was certain colors or certain textures. And he'd go off into the collection, um, bring me back a, a selection of maybe 20 specimens that were potential candidates. And then from there, I would take maybe five and take them off to my studio in the in the countryside in the UK and England and then um, spend my time photographing them. And then I used to go back every couple of months, go and see James again, and we'd swap over specimens. And it worked like that for about three years. Oh, my. Were you 
funded? Was there a grant, perhaps, that Oxford University um, provided so you could be paid for this work? No, 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 no. No, I mean, I, I've, I used to fit this in around my commercial work. I mean, at the time, I was, I was still shooting some commercial advertising work and magazines and portraits. And so my normal day-to-day job was still still going. Um, I had to fit this in in the, in the evenings or any spare time, which is why it took three years. I think if I was able to, to work on it full-time, it could probably be done in about a year and a half. So yeah, no, there was no funding. And, but you know, it's, if you want to change direction in a career, um, and that's certainly what it was, you know, I don't think you should expect people to pay you for that luxury. So I'm fine with it. You know, I, it was, uh, it's, it's, it's enabled me to move focus in my photography and career now. Um, and seven years on, I'm still photographing insects, which is um, a beautiful place to be. Your image of the Amazonian purple warrior scarab is striking in its use of color. Purple's my favorite color. <laughs> Are those scarabs really that deep a purple? Um, they are. You know, I think the way I photograph things kind of enhance, no, it doesn't enhance the color, but it potentially makes it more vibrant because I, I photograph with flashlights. So normally we would observe these, these specimens in ambient light and daylight. And with certain creatures like, like that, for example, the way they make their light, their color is through the refraction of light. So basically on their, on their bodies, they've got these tiny little microscopic scales that act like prisms. And when the light hits it, it refracts the, the light to, in, to make a certain color in the spectrum. So when you're photographing something with flashlight, I can position my lights in a way that they, they hit the insect in a direct path. By that, I mean the, the light beam goes straight rather than ambient light, which is a bit more diffused and uh, all around us. So in that, in that respect, it, it makes the colors a bit more vibrant, potentially than if you were just viewing them with the naked eye. But, um, but the actual colors themselves are, are real. That's how they are in real life. Oh, it's stunning. And then the jewel long-horned beetle looks like it has tiger stripes. What can you tell us about this yeah. insect? Well, I mean, it's, again, it's quite a common insect. And I, and I have to say, you know, I'm not an entomologist in any, any, any stretch of the form. It's, um, I, I get as fascinated about these insects as, as everyone else. Um, I'm learning all the time about them. Um, you know, even like for that, that one there, when I, when I selected it at the museum in Oxford, and then I did, had no idea at the time that it almost had hair on it. Um, it was only once I got it back to the studio and started photographing it under the microscope that I realized the texture of these creatures. And um, every time I start photographing a new one, it always gives me surprises. I can never, it's, it's, it's amazing how varied and it's just, they, they amaze me, they, they, they stun me every time. Mm. You mentioned that children aren't afraid. They don't see these as monstrous or evil in any way. I was wondering if photographing insects 
over these past six, seven years has changed your perspective on killing bugs. I mean, we know the expression, he wouldn't hurt a fly, but people have no problem swatting at a fly or stepping on a little insect that has made its way into the house. No, I mean, yeah, it certainly changed my view in that respect. I've got, I've got far more respect for these creatures. When you work with them day in, day out on this kind of microscopic level and you, you take yourself kind of into their world, it seems like, you know, they're ingenious. The way nature has developed them and, and the, kind of the, even the mechanics in them, you know, the wings of a fly or a dragonfly, the, the structure of them is, is just breathtaking. And the idea then that we would just kill this wantonly without even a, a thought sort of upsets me these days. There's no need for it, I think. And the other thing is we, we need to understand as well how important these creatures are for us. When I say us, I'm talking about, you know, for humans in general, for our species. You know, without insects, there, aren't, there is no human life. And it's as simple as that. And the, the speed at which insect decline is happening is dramatic. Uh, it doesn't really get reported, which is, which is a problem at the moment. Uh, hopefully there'll be more conversation about it in the future but um but yeah we need to i think we need to have a little bit more respect for these small creatures because they do a hell of a lot of work for us photographer levon biss his micro sculpture insect portraits are on view at the fernbank museum through april 4th you've been listening to city lights our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.